Good to see you this morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter number 14. Matthew chapter number 14 in our Bibles. And um, this was a little bit unexpected um, this morning, but uh, good service in the, in the 8 o'clock hour. I trust the Lord will bless our time together this morning. And um, I spoke with Pastor Schott last night. They were going to be flying out early this morning and making it to church service in North Carolina this morning. Pray for them as they're as they're gone, I want to thank everybody who uh, last week we mentioned we were praying that our daughters, our youngest daughter's passport would come in. It did arrive. Uh, we have it in hand as of yesterday. We leave for Canada Tuesday morning, Lord willing, and, um, and we'll be off to uh, Montreal for a few days and then off to Ottawa, the church we were going to be in last Sunday or we're supposed to be in last Sunday. We'll be in next Sunday, Lord willing, in Ottawa, and then... Um, uh, a couple other things we've got going on up there, and then we'll make our way back to Connecticut for a short time, and, and then uh, back to Tennessee, and from there, uh, well, Paul and the girls get to stay, and I have about 24 hours to repack my bags and fly to California, and so looking forward to that trip also, and uh, looking forward to a, a good conference out in California, and asking the Lord to bless that. Um, it's good to be here this morning, Matthew chapter 14. I can't remember if it was in 2018, 2019 that uh, I was here for a missions conference, preaching the missions conference in the winter time, and uh, I preached a series from Matthew 14 during that conference, uh, but not, not this portion of the text of Matthew 14. Um, it it kind of led up to this portion of the text, and if you're familiar with your Bible and you kind of know what are, you know, there's certain key passages that you kind of remember. Everybody, you say John 3, and people think, okay, we're going to go to John 3, 16. Uh, you say Genesis 1, people think, okay, we're going to talk about creation. And you say Matthew 16, and people's mind usually race to uh, the church and Jesus' first mention of the church. Uh, Matthew 28, we think of the Great uh, Commission. As we think of Matthew 14, a lot of people will think of the fact that this is the chapter that covers that great and really, I think, such an amazing uh, incident where Peter walks on water with the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, when I was here, we focused on, the, in, that, in that conference, that missions conference, we focused on the idea of walking on water by faith, so on and so forth. Today, I want to get a little bit further into the text um, they don't necessarily have to be tied together in any way, shape, or form. I mention it only because if you were here for that conference, you say, oh, I heard you preach from Matthew 14 before. I'm going to tune out. Um, please don't do that. This is a different spot, different time. And uh, I want to focus in on uh, what the Lord has to say, what Jesus has to say to Peter after he has walked on water. And... Um, uh, to me, it's such an interesting thing that takes place in Matthew 14 as, as this is happening. Uh, to set the context, if you're not familiar with Matthew 14, you didn't know this was the chapter that uh, Peter would walk on the water. Just prior to this was the feeding of the 5,000. Um, the apostles, those in the boat with Peter, are very, very tired. Can you imagine waiting tables for 5,000 men, women, and children beside? Uh, they've had a long day of ministry. At the end of that day, the Lord Jesus tells them, get in the boat, uh, row to the other side of the sea. I will meet you on the other side. Mark tells us 
And by the way, we know that Jesus always knew the storm that they will face in the ocean or in the sea rather that night um, was coming. He always knew that. He would be aware of that, being God, he was going to be aware. Mark tells us that he was praying for the disciples while they were out there rowing. Um, so Jesus was very aware. And then eventually he comes and he meets them walking on the sea. And uh, as, as, we, as we come to the text, that's where we kind of pick it up reading. As Jesus is going to come and meet the disciples. The Bible says in Matthew 14, beginning in verse 24, and uh, we'll read through to verse number uh, 32. The Bible says this, But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. And the idea is that this is really a, a raging storm. Uh, the storm is so strong that the, that the uh, disciples that are in the boat can't make any headway. They're trying to get to where Jesus told them to be. They can't make it across. They're kind of stuck where they are. The wind is contrary. In other words, they're rowing into a headwind. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. So it's, it's late, late, late in the, in the evening time. We might even say early morning, probably three, four o'clock in the morning. And Jesus comes walking to them on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. And it has always been interesting to me that the first thing that comes to the disciples' mind out in the middle of the sea that night is, oh, good, not, it's not, oh, it's Jesus, we're saved. It's, oh, no, it's a spirit. We might say it's a ghost. We might say it's a demon. It, it's, it's, whatever that is, it's not here to help. And if you were here last Sunday, we were talking about our thought life and getting our thoughts focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, I think this is a great example of what happens when you're not focused on the Lord. Uh, because as you look at what's happening, these the, uh, again, it's Mark that tells us that they were toiling and rowing. They were exhausting themselves in rowing, and they're not paying attention to anything, but we got to make it through the storm. And interestingly enough, they've just served, they've just seen Jesus feed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, women and children beside. They've seen the miracle. Their first response isn't, hey, let's, let's kind of maybe stop the rowing, pray and ask God to help us. They're focused on the circumstances are bad. Let's see what we can do to get through this. And they're not even expecting Jesus to show up. And you see how easy it is for us to kind of wander in our thoughts and not even expect the Lord to show up. And, and yet he does, uh, but they're not even sure it's him because they weren't expecting him. They weren't looking for him. Verse 27, but, but straightway Jesus spake unto them saying, be of good cheer. In other words, don't be afraid, be of cheer, good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. And you got to love Peter, right? Because with that one statement, Peter hears what the Lord has to say, but he's still not certain if it's Jesus. And remember, they think they're seeing a spirit, a, a ghost, a demon. And Peter said unto, said, uh, answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, as if the spirit other than Jesus, would not lie at this point. I'm always amazed that Peter's just like, well, if it's you, Lord, 
Not really sure. If it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, and good thing it was Jesus, right? And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And by the way, I don't know exactly what was happening in Peter's mind at this time and how he kind of figured things out because he does not ask, Lord, would you let me walk on water too? That's not what he says. He just says, hey, Lord, if that's you, I want to be where you are. Let me come see you. And, and Peter, by the way, he's the fisherman of the crowd. He's been on the sea. He's been in other storms, there's no doubt. He understands how to get out of a boat in the storm. And you don't get out of the boat in the storm by walking out of the boat. You get out of the storm in the boat by diving into the water and start swimming. You don't walk into the water. You dive into the water and you swim. In fact, there's an example of this in John chapter number 21 when Peter said, hey, listen, guys, I go a-fishing. And, and, and you remember that he goes with five others. They go fishing and uh, they, they fish all night. They don't catch anything. John spots Jesus on the shore and he yells over to Peter and he says, hey, it is the Lord. And when Peter gets out of the boat that night, he does it exactly like you would expect somebody experienced at being on the ocean to get out of the boat and he dives in and he swims. But this verse that we've just read, when Peter says, hey, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. And he said, come. And the Bible says, when Peter came down out of the ship, he walked on the water. And what we're being told in the picture that's being drawn by Matthew is when Peter literally stepped out onto the water like this. I don't know what was going through his mind. I don't know how, he, how come he expected to walk on water. But the picture that you see is that he walked out of the ship. And I see this great amount, in my mind, a great amount of faith. An amazing amount of faith. Verse 29, uh, and he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Verse 30, watch how easy it is to get your eyes and your mind off of Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. I mean, he steps out with this great amount of faith, I think. More faith than I have. He sees the wind boisterous. By the way, nobody in this room has ever seen the wind. You take your eyes off of Jesus, you'll imagine that you see a lot of bad things. He sees the wind boisterous, he's afraid, and he begins to sink, and he cried saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, and he caught him, and he said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and, and worshipped him, worshipped Jesus, saying, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. There's so much in this text, and, and there's so many things that we could talk about in Peter and his walk of faith with the Lord. It started when he called unto the Lord, and, and he said, hey, Lord, if it be thou bid me come. He, before he moved and got out of the boat, he confirmed from the word of God. He waited for Jesus to speak before he moved. When Jesus said, come, I would have froze. But Peter carried out his part. When he did that, he conquered the impossible. And for a little bit, he's careful to keep his eyes on Jesus. But then he kind of fails. And, and yet, though he takes his eyes off the Lord and he begins to sink, he cries unto the Lord... And that's a good lesson for you and I, that when we fail, 
It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. A just man falls seven times and gets up again. Cry unto the Lord. And you can expect that the Lord will treat you as he did Peter with a compassionate rescue. And he reaches down and he brings Peter up out of the water. And the idea of the text, and we'll come back to this later, is that when he got a hold of Peter, he really never let go of him again. Not at least till they get back to the boat. And, and that's really, I think, important. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, I want to pick it up in, in verse number 31 at a place where I don't think we spend a lot of time focusing on, but I want to look at what Jesus said to Peter after he walked on water. And I see a convicting rebuke here, a convicting rebuke in verse 31. Let's pray and then look at this text and see if we can be helped by it. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for this account. It's so amazing to me, all that takes place in this passage and, and all that you did, Lord. Um, Peter didn't walk on the water of his own power. You enabled him. And Lord, there's so much that we could discover and study in this passage. But as we focus in on, on your words, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to Peter that night on the water, Help us, Lord, to learn some things, to take away some things that will help us in our walk with you, but also our relationship with others, and our relationship with you also. Bless this time. May nobody leave here without being 100% certain that if they were to die today, they would be instantaneously and forever in the presence of Jesus Christ because of a relationship with him, having received him as Savior, born again into the family of God, Speak to every Christian heart. Have your will and way. Be honored and glorified in all that's said and done, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in the history of the world, there are some accomplishments that people have made, that people have done, that are so extraordinary that we kind of make them a part of an exclusive club. We kind of say, you know, they're, they're part of, of that club. In fact, we, we even have one that's called the President's Club. And, you know, only 40-something men have ever held the office of the President of the United States. If you look it up, you'll find that only 12 men have ever walked on the moon. Um, those are pretty exclusive clubs. If you consider how many people have lived in the history of the world, and then you consider how many people have stood on the summit of Mount Everest, you will consider that you'll find out that not a lot of people, comparatively speaking to the population, have ever stood on the summit of Mount Everest. Not a lot of people have achieved the status of gold medal Olympian. Not a lot of men or women have ever sat on the Supreme Court of the United States of America, and even fewer have been the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. In fact, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is a more exclusive club than President of the United States. There's been less Chief Justices than there have been Presidents. And so you go through and you find out that there have been a lot of times where people have done things that are so extraordinary. You say, it'd be neat to be a part of that club, but probably I'm not going to be a part of that club. I, I, I tell my family all the time. I, I saw this morning, I, I went out early before the morning service, somewhere around 7 or so this morning, and, and uh, the moon was out. And every time I see the moon, I don't think I ever look at the moon without thinking of the Apollo missions, without thinking of those who 
walked on the moon because I'm just so fascinated with that. Not only that, I'm an adrenaline junkie. And, and for me, a ride in a rocket ship would be like, you know, the best roller coaster ride on steroids ever. And, and I tell my family all the time, I would love to be a part of those who go to the moon. And I know sometimes they think, well, we wish you would just go. Um, but uh, I don't think I'm ever going to get to do that. I've always enjoyed uh, climbing, rock climbing, mountain climbing, skiing, all that stuff. And, and from a boy, I've, I've always thought, man, it'd be so cool to be one of those people that summited Mount Everest. I've got like Bear Mountain under my belt here in Connecticut. You know, it's a whole 2,000 feet. I've, I've done some that are higher out west for sure, but nothing close to Mount Everest. And I think, man, I would love to do that. My, my son flew in to surprise the family from Baghdad the other day, and he's just here for a couple days with us, and, and uh, we've spent the last few days with him, and, and he's picked up a new passion. He and I used to always love to play tennis together, uh, and, and now he's, he's a pickleball addict, and like a lot of people in the world, and so I've been playing pickleball with him for these last few days, and yesterday Paula's dad said to me, how'd you do at pickleball? And I was like, this close to Olympian status. Not so, but I'd like to be a part of that club. Just to get in the Olympics would be an amazing thing. And we talk about all these people have done all this stuff, but think about this. Of all the exclusive clubs in the world, the most exclusive is the one that Peter himself and only Peter belongs to. I'm excluding Jesus because he's God and of course he can walk on water. But of all the people in the history of the world forever, only Peter's walked on water. He is the most exclusive club. He's the president of the club. He's the member of the club. He's the secretary of the club. He pays himself his own dues. I mean, he's the guy. Nobody else has done this. And while I'd like to be a part of the club that's gone to the moon or gone to uh, the summit of Mount Everest, how cool would it be to walk on water? And yet, here's what I know. When I look at Peter in the amount of faith that he exercised that night, I think to myself, I don't think I could take the step out of the boat. I don't think I, I have that kind of faith. And that's why I see in this text, in verse 31, this convicting rebuke. Because when Peter begins to fail and he begins to falter and he takes his eyes off the Lord and he cries out, Lord, save me, and Jesus pulls him out of the water, uh, Jesus looks at him and, 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 you know, if I were there, I would have probably looked at Peter and gone, awesome, that was amazing. But Jesus looks at him and you might say, I know what Jesus would say, great faith, Peter. Well done, Peter. Nobody else has done that, Peter. So he says, O thou of little faith. And for me personally, that is a convicting rebuke. I think it must have been convicting and it must have convicted the heart of Peter, there's no doubt. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But for me... When I consider this personally, when I consider I have never walked on water and probably never will, I would love to have the kind of faith that Peter exhibited in this text 
to be able to just get out of the boat. And to get out of the boat the way he did and, and really expect to be able to go meet the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd love to do that. But I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider these words, to consider what Jesus says to describe the faith of, uh, of Peter that night. And he says to him, Oh, ye of little faith. And I think to myself, if Jesus looked at Peter and he just walked on water and he says, Oh, ye of little faith, what does he say about mine? Oh, ye of microscopic faith? Good thing I'm God and can see it. And he, and he says to, to Peter, oh, ye of little faith. And by the way, aren't you glad it only takes a little? But just the same. Oh, ye of little faith? When you think about that, I don't know about you, but for me, it, it kind of, it helps me in some ways. You know, every once in a while, every once in a while, I'll exercise some faith and do something and, and even somebody will recognize and say, well, that took faith. And then I start thinking, well, maybe I'll start a club for people of great faith. And then I have to remember, wait a minute, Peter only had a little, so maybe I shouldn't start the club. And for me, it's such a, a convicting rebuke. But I want to look at this rebuke and, and notice some things because I really think that we can be helped by really noticing what Jesus says and, and, and understanding what is going on here. And, and there's three, three things specifically I'd like to consider about this rebuke. It is convicting, but the first thing I see is, is it's, it's honest. It's honest. And what I mean by that is when Jesus looks at Peter, the first thing he says to him is, Oh, ye of little faith, not a faithless one. And there's so much to learn from just that statement. Because I don't think I'm alone in this. And that is when I see a failure on somebody else's part, when I observe a fault, I have a tendency... To exaggerate that. I don't think I'm the only person that's ever done that. Maybe you never have, but maybe somebody has exaggerated your faults or your small faith. And maybe you've heard something like this. What's wrong with you? Can't you ever do anything right? Why do you always mess everything up? Can't you just once get it right? Why do you always do that? How come you never listen to me? Why can't you ever just do what I ask you just once? In this text, if Jesus responded to Peter in the way that sometimes I have a tendency to exaggerate the faults of those around me and those who disappoint me, those who really are close to me, those whom I love dearly and they disappoint me. Most of that comes, by the way, from unrealistic expectations. Then I exaggerate their faults. You would expect Jesus to say something like this to Peter. Hey, Peter. 
Why do you always open your big mouth and put yourself in these positions? Peter, why can't you just once get it right? It seems like Peter, as much as he tries, at least in his time with the Lord, in those three years, as much as he tries, it, it seems like he always kind of just falls a little bit short of actually fully following through, of getting it right. He's kind of almost, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but he's almost comical. I think of, I think of, I think of the night when the, uh, the, the crowd comes to arrest Jesus and, and you know, uh, the first three Gospels all say that somebody took uh, in, uh, their sword out to, to get a hold of those who were coming to arrest the Lord Jesus. John, make sure that you and I know it's Peter. And, and just as a side note, study this out sometime. I think there was a friendly rivalry between John and Peter. Uh, and John lets us know, it was Peter that did it. Peter took his sword out. And by the way, he's so sorry he missed and all he got was the guy's ear. You know he wasn't aiming for his ear, right? He was aiming for his head. He was, he was trying to separate his head from his shoulder. And Peter just seems to never be able to fully get it right. And yet you don't hear Jesus say to him, how come not just once can you get it right, Peter? How come you didn't say faith one? In this text, Jesus teaches us something that's so vitally important that when you have to admonish somebody, when you have to kind of maybe give a, a, a rebuke, make sure you're honest about it and it's done in, done in love, with honesty. There's never a time when the command of Colossians 4, 6 becomes optional. Let your speech be always or at all times with grace seasoned with salt that you may know how, to, uh, how you ought to answer every man. Proverbs 25, verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. My family, we are, uh, we are a family that, well, first of all, we're New Englanders through and through. I mean, I know that uh, we don't live here, but we're still New Englanders. And, and we get frustrated a lot in other parts of this country because if you're, if you're a New Englander, there's a part of you that is kind of New England. And it doesn't exist outside this country and it can be frustrating. And that thing is sarcasm. Because like we get it, right? And we expect everybody else to get it. And you can't, you can't go five seconds in our family without somebody throwing some sarcastic remark around. I mean, it, it just flies. And we expect it here in New England. In fact, my girls are like, can we just go back to New England? People understand sarcasm? Because in the rest of the world, they don't get it. It was frustrating for me in Quebec. You can't even, in French, it's impossible grammatically to even be sarcastic. Do you know I lived frustrated for a while? We had a, a family in our church in Arizona that came from Romania. And, and, and they finally, after about you know four or five years, dad became deacon. The daughter was our pianist. And they came and they said, we just didn't understand you at first at all. Till we understood that there's this thing called sarcasm. Like they didn't know about sarcasm any. I was like, you poor people. What's wrong with you? 
But every once in a while, the sarcasm flies just a little bit too much in our family. And, and my wife usually will be the one, or because uh, usually the girls, and, and Janique is the, uh, she, I'm so proud of her, because she does, the, she says things I wish I could think of. Now, my wife, on the other hand, would say, that's not good. And she'll be like, hey, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying. And my wife will sometimes say, was that edifying? And I'm like, okay, Sister Teresa. But that's not Jesus. I mean, he just comes and he's so honest, but he's so loving in it. And there's so much for us to learn here. By the way, I think sarcasm is okay and it has its place, but there's times when we got to put it away. And probably when we're frustrated and we're going to give a rebuke, that's probably one of the times to tuck it away. And when we have to do like Jesus does, be honest. And if somebody exhibits little faith, call it little faith. Don't call it faithlessness. You remember what James says in James 1 and verse 26? If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. So this is, this is an honest rebuke. It's also a humbling rebuke. It's a humbling rebuke. Can you imagine the bragging rights Peter has after walking on water? Off the charts, right? Like, I was president of the United States. So what? I walked on water. I walked on the moon. <laughs> Solid ground still. Did you ever walk on water? Serious bragging rights. And by the way, they say it's not bragging if you've actually done it. It's not prideful if it's true. And here's something you and I know about Peter. He has a hard time controlling his tongue, right? Like one of the most glaring parts of his character is... His trouble with pride. And I can imagine if Jesus had not rebuked him in the way that he did that night on the sea, that right after, you know, he takes his eyes off the Lord, he begins to sink, Lord save me, the Lord picks him up, and, and the idea that where he, he picks him up is there's no place where it seems to indicate that he ever let go of him until he got back to the, to the boat. We're going to talk about that. But... He's there, but you could almost imagine Peter looking at Jesus after he's just been saved and, and because he started to sink and go to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, did you just see what I did? Was that awesome or what? I mean, I made it pretty far, didn't I? Farther than those guys back in the boat. You can imagine what he would have said. And maybe he wouldn't have said it to Jesus. But what about when he got back to the boat? Hey man, high five! Knuckle bumps everywhere. Guys, did you see that? Think about Peter in, 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 in moving forward from this point in the early church and the leaders in the early church. And you could imagine the bragging rights that Peter had. Paul walks into the room and somebody's like, oh, here's Paul, the great missionary church planter. And Paul, where'd you plant a church this week? And 
And, and, you know, man, Paul, you're just such an encouragement to us. You keep going on in the face of so much opposition, nights and days in the deep, and you've been in these shipwrecks, and people have tried to kill you, and they had to let you down from the wall in a basket. And, and Peter's watching all this, and he says to somebody, did he ever walk on water? James becomes the senior pastor of the church at Jerusalem, actually the, the first leader. It's not Peter who's the first leader of the church, friends. Matthew 16 makes very clear that that's not going to be the case. Acts tells us it's James. He's the senior pastor. And in fact, if you'll study the book of Acts, you'll find out that Peter actually uh, puts himself underneath the leadership of James. And, he, and he, he gives some advice to James, but James actually, as the leader of the church and the pastor of the church, says, I've listened to what you've got to say. Here's what we're going to do when they're talking about what to do with Gentiles and, and how they believe and what should they recommend to them. And, and what I'm saying is that Peter, with all these bragging rights, could say, why is he the pastor? He never walked on water. Somebody's preaching and they say, hey guys, do you remember Stephen and, and his boldness for the Lord before the Sanhedrin council? And do you remember how he, he, he just stood up to them and, and gave them the truth so unashamedly? And, and even in his death, he was so Christ-like. And Peter says, but did he walk on water? Somebody mentions Philip and his obedience to leave revival, to go off into the desert, to lead the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. And, and, and Peter says, yeah, but hey, did you guys know I walked on water one night? If we're certain of one thing about Peter, it's that he was prone to prideful outbursts. But here's the deal. Peter would never be able to talk about walking on water without remembering this rebuke. He was never going to be able to put that away. He couldn't separate the two things. He could never talk about walking on water without also hearing the words of Jesus in his ears. Oh, ye of little faith. And I don't imagine that it's coincidental then that there is no biblical record of Peter ever even one time mentioning that he walked on water. It was a humbling rebuke. It's clear to me that this rebuke, at least for this particular incident, was humbling to Peter. He never speaks about it again. Peter must have, every time he wanted, and wouldn't you want to talk about walking on water? I would. I'd want to talk about it. Man, if I ever summited Mount Everest, I would tell every person I met, I would work it into the conversation. I would want to talk about walking on water. But he would hear those words, and perhaps he also remembered Proverbs 27 and verse number 2, let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. Verse 25 and verse 27, it is, it is not good for, to eat much honey, so for men to search their own glory is no glory. So this is a convicting rebuke. It's, it's honest, it's, it's humbling, but it's a considerate rebuke. And what I mean by that is it's considerate in that it's humbling, but it's not humiliating. And by the way, those are two very different things. We can all use some humbling. Humbling. 
from time to time. Nobody needs to be humiliated. Those are very different things. And I see that Jesus does this in such a way that while it's honest and while it was definitely humbling, he also made sure it would not be humiliating. Because Jesus holds the conversation while he and Peter are still over here away from the ship. Can you imagine, have you ever been by the, by the sea in a storm? The wind is whipping, the waves are crashing. Nobody is hearing what Peter and J Jesus are talking about. Nobody's hearing, oh, ye of little faith. He makes sure that this is done in private between the two of them. There was no mention of it when they got back to the boat. In fact, there's no mention of it. Just like, just like Peter never mentions that he walked on water, Jesus doesn't bring this incident up again either, ever. Because Jesus would have to say, oh yeah, I had to rebuke him. And God sometimes has to take us to a place and humble us. But aren't you glad that he doesn't humiliate us? And we have a tendency to see faults, exaggerate faults, and that other people know about faults. And that doesn't need to be the case. Jesus never brings that subject up again. It's almost as if he knew Psalm 103, verses 10 through 14. He, God, hath not dealt with us after our sins, or rewarded us according to our iniquity. The heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. He remembers because that's what he made us from. You remember what I said? Usually we exaggerate the faults of those who disappoint us because they're kind of the closest to us and we have unrealistic expectations from them. But Jesus knew Peter was just dust. So he doesn't have to exaggerate and he doesn't have to humiliate. He just wants to be honest. Truth is, Peter, like all of us, needed a little humbling. And there, there's, there's so much, there's so much that we could say here. But I, I would say this. If you, if you have to be in that place where you admonish somebody, where there has to be kind of this rebuke, find a way to do it privately, secretly, away from everybody else. Don't do it in a prayer request. I know you never do this, but I've been in prayer meetings. Pray for so-and-so, they got a drinking problem. Probably not everybody needed to know that. Probably you could just say, pray for so-and-so, and God knew what you were going to pray for. Jesus' purpose in, in, in rebuking Peter was to humble him, but not to humiliate him. And, and there's never cause to humiliate no matter how much you may think there's a cause. I was in a conference some time ago in Tennessee in a, in a large church, uh, I don't know, 1,000 to 1,500 people at least. And uh, in this conference, it was, there were a bunch of teens in the auditorium. It was just packed out with teens. And you know kind of 
teens, right? They're always so concerned what their peers think of them, so on and so forth. And, and um, uh, in, this, in this particular service, one of the teens must have been cutting up in the back of the auditorium. I was in this place where I should have been able to see it and I didn't. Uh, but the speaker, the, I wasn't the speaker at that point, um, uh, saw it. And man, I was, I felt badly. Because the way he took care of this was, hey, you in the back. Yeah, you, I'm talking to you. And finally, the kid's like, me? Yeah, I'm talking to you. He said, I'm speaking, you're listening. You know what, in fact, just, just get out of here. And he dismissed him from the service. And I thought, oh, my soul. You just lost me. I guarantee you just lost all the 1,500 teens in this room. I can guarantee you I know who you lost. And because I have a relationship with the church, I, I learned later on that that young teenage boy that was dismissed from the service in that humiliating way was actually a, a bus rider that the church was working and picking up and hadn't yet been saved. You know that kid would never ride that bus again? That surprised you? Doesn't surprise me. And I'm just saying that there's a place for rebuke. There's a place to be honest. There's a place to be, to be humbling. And, 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 and we all need that. I remember talking to one of my dear friends and a mentor in my life. And, and I was just going through a really, really rough time in, in, with the church in Arizona. And it just seemed like, man, I had, I had a number of disgruntled people. And I was, just, I was just like, honestly, just having a pity party for myself. And I was talking to, to this, this mentor of mine, and, and I was just kind of laying it out there for him. I was expecting him to feel really badly for me and to kind of be like, Tony, it'll be okay. I know they're idiots, and, and you're right, and don't worry about it, and all that kind of stuff. And that's what I was expecting. And he just looked at me, and he said, um, hey, Tony. He said, you know, if I had to do it all over again, and he wasn't pastoring any longer, he was in a position to kind of mentor and doing some other things, and he said, if I had to do it all over again, one thing I would do, I would just love people more. And I heard that, and then it registered, and I was like, oh man, he just punched me in the jaw. I was expecting him to feel badly for me, and here he is telling me, hey, kid, you need some humbling. <laughs> and he did it in a way that just has always stuck with me. And I've always thought about that. From then, I've, I've thought of that so many times. I would just love people more. Notice also, not only is this a convicting rebuke, a, a considerate rebuke, it's a compelling rebuke, a compelling rebuke. Note well that, that Jesus doesn't leave the rebuke off at, O thou of little faith. Verse 31 says this, And said unto him, Jesus saying, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? That's the whole conversation. O thou little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now you and I understand something. When Jesus asks a question, when God asks a question, when you read a question in your Bible, God is not lacking information. 
He's always asking questions for our benefit, not for his. And usually the Lord asks you and I questions for a twofold purpose. Number one, to get us to reflect, and then number two, to get us to respond. Reflect and respond. Always for our benefit. But as you, as you look at this text, there is no response from Peter. O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And Peter, this is as big a miracle as Peter walking on water. Peter's mouth is shut. Because he's the guy with his mouth open all the time. He's the guy who's comfortable two chapters later in Matthew 16 when Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. And, G and Peter says to Jesus, no you're not. He's very comfortable opening his mouth. He's comfortable even rebuking the Lord. But this night on the sea, hey Peter, why'd you doubt? And his mouth is shut. And I've thought about that. Well, if you had to answer that, what would be the response? Jesus actually already gave the answer, right? Wherefore didst thou doubt? I had little faith. I had little faith. And by the way, I don't know about you, but it helps me that Jesus did say little faith and not faithless. Because Peter didn't have to say, I was faithless. And by the way, Satan would love for you and I to believe from time to time that we are completely and utterly faithless. People struggle with their salvation all the time. And, and more often than not, they're like, did I really believe? And did I really? I, I'm working with somebody right now and their question all the time keeps coming back is this. Did I have enough faith when I prayed and asked the Lord? By the way, you don't have to pray to ask the Lord. That's a different story. Let me not get started. You got to believe, okay? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Okay? How much believe? Well, Peter walked on water with like this much faith. I mean, I don't think I can qualify it. Belief. As much sincere belief as I can muster at that point in my life. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. You say, well, what if you had doubt in your heart at the same time? Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. But in the end, there's this, there's this compelling rebuke, and we see that Jesus' purpose isn't to win an argument. He's not like, come on, Peter. Why didn't you believe? Come on, Peter. Why didn't you do this? Because his, his purpose is not to destroy, but to fix, fix and build up. And he understands something. He, he understands that if you and I can't recognize what we did wrong, we can't fix it. You can't fix what you don't know is broken. Or you don't recognize is broken. And, and, and Peter has to recognize, and I think this is why he comes to him and he says, Hey, listen, uh, you, you need to reflect upon this. Wherefore didst thou doubt? By the way, I already gave you the answer. Little faith. And I want to take and apply that in our own lives. Because I think some of us may be sitting in this today and the Lord is saying to us, 
come here, get out of the boat. And by the way, I think it took a certain amount of faith to even get in the boat after a long day like they had. I don't know if Peter knew there was a storm coming or not, but he was a fisherman. He was aware of the weather patterns. I know that storms can come up out of nowhere, and it could have been a divinely appointed storm. But, but Peter exercised some faith when he just got in the boat with, by the way, a bunch of people who weren't used to being on the ocean. And then the Lord called him out of the boat. And maybe the Lord's saying to you, it's time for you to get out of the boat. The boat, by the way, is Peter's comfort zone. He's a fisherman. He's perfectly comfortable there. Matthew, the tax collector, not so comfortable there. Some of the others, probably not so comfortable. But Peter's pretty comfortable. He's been through a storm before. Get out of the boat. Maybe the Lord's saying to you, it's time to get out of the boat and exercise some faith in some area of your life. I, I wouldn't even presume to know what that is. But he's saying, hey, I, here's what I would like you to do. Exercise some faith. Get out of the boat. And your first response is, but I'm not like Peter. I didn't open my mouth. And I didn't say, Lord, if it be, thou bid me come. But the Lord's still calling. And he's still saying, come on. Get out of the boat. And you're like, no, I'm not going to get out of the boat, Lord. Can I challenge you? Ask yourself this question. Wherefore do I doubt? Can you imagine the conversation between Peter and Jesus that night? I picture them eyeball to eyeball. Peter having to look into the eyes of Jesus Jesus saying to him, wherefore dost thou doubt? And the Lord asks you and I to get out of the boat and get out of our comfort zone and exercise some faith. And we say, nah, I think I'm going to stay right here. It'd be good for us to ask ourselves, wherefore do I doubt? The God who can make Peter walk on water is the God I serve. He's as sovereign today as he ever was or ever will be. He, he, he's not getting more sovereign or more powerful. He's always been all powerful. Wherefore do I doubt? I think it's a, I think it's a compelling rebuke. We've got to ask ourselves that question. And then let me wrap it up with this. I think this is such an important part of all of this. And, and it can happen because of the way Jesus handled this. As an example for you and I as well on how we can handle uh, these kind of situations where somebody has the potential to disappoint us and we are disappointed. I, I see this. I see that there was a continuing relationship after this conversation. And that's really important. Verse 32, and when they, and if you mark your Bibles, I would encourage you to mark the word they. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, put a star by it, make it stand out. And when they, the idea is, Together, the both of them were coming to the ship. The wind ceased. Peter and Jesus got in the boat together. I told you already that the text indicates that when Jesus grabbed a hold of Peter to take him up out of the water, that he really never let go of him again. And I can't prove this emphatically exactly how it happened other than to say that Jesus didn't let go of him but I picture in my mind Jesus with his arm around Peter walking back to the boat holding him up steadying him along the way 
And boy, did Peter ever come to a really full and deep understanding of just how much he needed the Lord at that moment. Right? What if, what if Peter made it all the way to Jesus and then walked back to the boat, even walked side by side with Jesus, but under his own power, no help from Jesus, seemingly no help, no outward help, walks back to the boat, gets inside. It would not be hard for Peter to convince himself he did that. But when he walks back to the boat with Jesus... And they get in together, and Jesus is the one who's doing all the supporting. He knows in a very real, tangible, physical way, man, I need the Lord. And I think this is part of what compels Peter to make sure that there's this continuing relationship. That doesn't mean that Peter never is going to fail again. It doesn't mean that he's not going to have great successes again. What I'm saying is that there is a continuing relationship. And I think a lot of times we let things slide in relationships We always say this, our relationship just blew up. No, it didn't. It didn't. It happens over time. Because we fail to address the smaller things along the way. And it's like a ticking time bomb. And then it just does blow up. But it was still over the time, over a time period of thing. And and so Jesus is careful to address this with Peter. And then they, they can move on together. And the relationship works. But I think what happens is we get so afraid to, to even address a thing because we don't want to break the relationship. Your relationship is probably not that fragile. If you're at a point where you can address it, it's probably not that fragile. Address it. Do it like Jesus, you'll probably do okay. And, and there's so much, again, for you and I to, to learn here uh, from this because, because I think there's two things that can happen in our Christian life. And, and that is... The first thing is, uh, more often than not, we, we experience these failures, right? And that causes us to wonder. And that's a time when Satan loves to get in and say, failure. But he's the one who says, faithless one. Jesus says, little faith. Satan would say, faithless one. God can't use you anymore. He was right there and you took your eyes off him. How's he going to use you? And then we begin to wonder. Am I usable? Could God really love me after I failed him like this? By the way, Peter's going to fail him in an even greater way, not too long into the future, right? He's going to deny him three times. So, So failure causes us to wonder. And on the flip side of that, very often, success, which Peter enjoyed some of that night, can cause us to wander. Because if we're not careful, we think we are doing it on our own. And all of a sudden, I don't need the Lord. And there's such an important point here. When Matthew is careful to say they got back into the boat together. By the way, they stayed in the boat. Jesus didn't have to stay in the boat. Could have got Peter back to the boat and said, hey, stick with plan A. I'll see you on the other side. And he could have kept walking or he could have just said, hey, I'll, I'll see you there and beamed himself over however he wanted to do it. And then from that point forward, they continue to walk together. Until the end of Peter's life, they continue to walk together. And, and, and it's such an important point to, to kind of study out. Because you don't want to wonder 
and you don't want to wander. It's such a kind of dangerous thing. Man, could God ever use me again? I, I, I had such little faith. That's a silly question to ask when you remember that you were dead in trespasses and sin and he decided that he would save you. Right? I mean, if he'll save you out of your death and trespasses and sins, probably he'll use you again after you fail a couple times. And, and Peter failed more than a couple times, by the way. And the, the success part is really scary, too, because you can wander off and be like, well, I, I did this. And the Bible's filled with examples of this, right? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve walked with the Lord in the garden, but then they sinned and they fled from his presence. And I think they're, they're wondering, now what? How can I meet God? Cain brought the wrong offering to the Lord. He slew his brother and in his folly he becomes angry with the Lord and his judgment. And certainly he wondered. Moses walks with the Lord in a great way, has a great amount of faith. And, and yet he, all of a sudden, it's almost like, how did that happen? He's following God, he's depending upon God, depending upon God, and then, and then he's got to get water to the people, and God says, tells him exactly what to do, speak unto the rock, and then and Moses gets up and he goes, do I got to get you water now? And he smacks the rock twice, and he begins to wander, as if he was the guy who parted the sea, as if he's the guy who's been doing all of this. Aaron, the same thing, right? He's been kind of the right-hand man with Moses, and then Moses isn't uh, where, where he expects him to be, and he forsakes the Lord, and he casts that golden calf, and he begins to wander again. David, I just read about David in my morning devotions, I, 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 either this morning or yesterday morning, I think it was yesterday morning, when it, and it came to pass when kings go forth to war. David had, all these successes are listed, and then kings go forth to war. And David's sitting at home, not doing what he should be doing as a king. And I think at that point, he's wandering. Elijah had a great victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And, and, and then he goes off and he fears. Because some woman told him, I'll take your head off. And he wanders. John the Baptist Jesus said, no one, no man born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is in prison after really a successful ministry. He's fulfilled his ministry in, in a great way. And he's so distraught that he's kind of wandering and wondering all at the same time. And he sends word to Jesus, are you really even the one we're looking for? Are you an imposter? There's tons and tons and tons, so many examples we could go through. And, and, and I think the point is simply this, is that it's important for you and I to remember something. Neither our success nor our failures are permanent on planet Earth. There's always an afterwards to both. An afterwards of success and an afterwards of failure. And whether uh, good or bad, difficult trials or delightful times, there's always this afterwards. Noah 
got off the ark. And Joseph didn't die in a slave in Egypt. And Moses did make it through the Red Sea. And it took 40 years, but Joshua crossed the Jordan. And Caleb was 85, but he got his mountain. And, and, and David did stay at home. And he had all that wickedness that took place. And, and, and the Bible sums it up in such a scary way. And what David did displeased the Lord. And so much so that his first son with Bathsheba dies. But then there's Solomon. And then uh, Ruth was widowed in Moab. But then she meets Boaz. And the disciples feared in the upper room. Uh, but then not too long later, they're endued with power from on high. Peter wept bitterly when he denied the Lord three times. But then he's going to preach Pentecost and 3,000 get saved. Jesus was beaten and, and, and mutilated and nailed to a cross. But three days later, he's going to rise again. And by the way, that's about the only permanent success you can count on in life. Jesus' resurrection. But in this lifetime, you and I are not going to have permanent failure nor permanent success. The important thing is stay close to the Lord. You're not going to win today's battles on yesterday's victories. And today's battles are not doomed because of yesterday's failures. Stay close to the Lord. Whether filled with success or failure, we've got to decide this. Peter learned that night, I need to stay close to Jesus. And what you and I need to learn is, I need to stay close to Jesus. What happens when all of that, when, when we stay close to Jesus like that? What, what, what takes place? I, I, I'm just going to give you this. I'm out of time. What happens? Well, Peter and Jesus get back to the boat. And it causes everybody else in the boat to notice Jesus. Verse 33. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him. Not Peter, Jesus. Saying of a truth, thou art the son of God. And when they saw this whole thing happen, all eyes were on Jesus. And yes, we could say, wow, Peter was a success. He, wa he walked on water. Or we could say, man, he was a failure. He sunk. But in them both, he stayed close to Jesus. And when he did, all eyes were on Jesus. And if you and I are going to live in such a way that people see Christ in us, the hope of glory, then stay close to the Lord. Day in and day out. Knowing that when I fail, he may need to give me an honest rebuke and he may need to humble me. There are times when we need it. But he won't humiliate me and he will not forsake me. And in times of success, I need to remember what Jesus said is still true. Even in any earthly success, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And in this text, there's a reminder of both of those. Such an important lesson for you and I. And our relationship with others as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this day, your goodness, your grace. God, we've covered a lot of things and there's a lot of questions that could be asked and a lot of ways we could approach this time together. Maybe somebody needs to simply look in the mirror and look in 
really more into your eyes, Lord, and, and, and you're calling them to do something by faith. I don't, I don't know what it could be. I have no idea. But they don't want to do it. They're afraid. They're wondering. Maybe they just have to ask themselves, wherefore do I doubt? As they look into the eyes of the Lord Jesus, as they consider his power today, as they consider as a child of God, maybe somebody here has never received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And they need to be saved. Maybe, maybe in our relationship, somebody has disappointed us and we haven't handled that very well and we've exaggerated the faults of that person and we need to fix that. Or, I don't know what it is, Lord. But Lord, if we could just have a couple of moments where we're quiet one with another and maybe Brother Dave could just play something quietly on the piano and, and just a few moments where we could just focus on what the Holy Spirit of God wants us to focus on in these moments.